You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. All right, I actually have a discussion question in the middle of the teaching tonight. I thought I'd give you guys a heads up so you're not caught off guard. Yeah, this, this book about happiness, Philippians, we, we're nearing the end of this book, and tonight we're talking about a major barrier to happiness, negativity and cynicism. I know that, I know for a fact none of you in this room have a problem with this, um, but I, I'm sure you have a friend or something that could use this, so I sure don't have a problem with this. And last week we, we, we were studying the peace of God, and we left off with this promise in Philippians 4, 7, which says, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a promise. What, this is the thing the world is longing for, can't seem to find. A, there, there's a worldly peace that is no peace at all, and yet God promises this. And if you remember in this passage, a lot of the things he had to say had to do with our mindset. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He talked about be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your, let your request be made known to God. And so we're bringing these things to God, but with a, with a positive attitude, with a rejoicing attitude, with a dwelling on the positive things. And he picks up on that this week as we move into verse 8. And nine, in a little bit, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. And so it's a big, long list of positive things here. Let's just briefly take a look at each one of them. Whatever is true... You know, this is not just simply dwelling on mere facts like 2 plus 2 equals 4, 2 plus 2 equals 4, or Albany's the capital of New York, Albany's the capital of New York. That's not the kind of truth he's really talking about here. Um, also not dwelling on negative truth because it's in, it's in a list of positive things. So this would be talking about positive truths. You know, oftentimes this word is used to describe truths about God, truths about the good news that Jesus Christ came to declare and that he entrusted us as ambassadors of and so we're, th- we're thinking about the things that are really true and the positive things that are true. Whatever is honorable, this word often is, uh, is translated just a few times in Scripture, dignified. Other literature, though, it means worthy of respect, majestic, awe-inspiring. Pretty general, broad term. Whatever is right, this refers to God's righteousness, God's righteous character, the righteous acts that God has done. We're thinking about the positive things about God. Whatever is pure, this would be moral purity. Um, whatever is lovely, this one translator says, this can just be everything we love. So, you know, what is it that you love? What, things that cause pleasure or delight for you. So, you know, this could be, you know, things in Scripture, this could just be things that make you happy, you know, uh, mountain vistas, a hot bath, uh, a steak, or, you know, vegetables if you're one of those kind of people. Kitty cats. The thought of getting rid of your kitty cat, you know, like whatever warms your heart. He's like, think about that. That's the stuff you should think about. Whatever is of good repute, again, another very broad word. A lot of these, honestly, these terms, they're found in a lot of like ancient Greek philosophy as just positive virtues, positive things. This means admirable, kind, likely to win people's hearts. What people should praise is another way of translating that. And then these last two are about the most general. These are just general terms for anything excellent, exceptional, worthy of praise by either God or people. 
And he says we should dwell on these things. We should think about these things. These, these words, what they all have in common is they're all positive. This is positive thinking. These are all positive things, and we're supposed to dwell on them. We're supposed to think about them. We'll talk about that word in a minute. And I just want to be clear, this is not the power of positive thinking. You know, there's like a new age way of, um, a new age philosophy or teaching that says, if I just imagine the thing, I, the reality that I want to be true, and I think on it hard enough, then the universe will respond, and it will make that come true. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about making some reality or conjuring it with your imagination. No, what he's talking about is there's a reality that's out there. And notice how it says whatever is true, not whatever you want to be true. Whatever is right and not whatever you want to be right. And so there's a reality that's, that's really out there. And what we need to do is we need to think about the positive aspects of that reality. That's what we need to set our mind on. And so it's, it's positive thinking in the sense that we're noticing and we're, we're tracking and we're paying special attention to the positive. This word to dwell on these things, logizomai, you know, Colin Brown's uh, Dictionary of New Testament Theology says this word means to count, to collect, to calculate, to consider, to deliberate, to grasp, to draw a logical conclusion to decide. So this is like a math word. This is like a counting word. He goes on and he says, the concept implies an activity of the reason which starts with ascertainable facts. So it's, it's rational. It takes the facts of the situation, and then it draws a conclusion, especially a mathematical one or one pertaining to business where calculations are essential. Plato uses it for thought that is unaffected by the emotions which seeks to grasp objective facts and apply them. And so it's like setting the emotions aside for the moment. We're just trying to analyze what is true. We're trying to grasp the reality, the facts of the situation. And what we'll see is then, as we'll talk about tonight, is it's oftentimes our perception of the facts that is driving our emotions. And because we have one set of facts, it's producing a set of emotions that we may not be real happy about. But if we can get the right set of facts then it's, our emotions are going to be a lot more positive. You know, dwell on these things. And again, this is, like I said, you know, it uses the word to calculate. You can imagine taking a calculator and punching in hard, cold numbers, you know, number plus number plus number, and then it, it, it all adds up to something. Or you think about someone taking inventory, right? You've got your little log, and you're logizomying the, the warehouse. You're at the restaurant. You're logizomying the, uh, you know, the, the supply room. And you're looking around, and you know, you're not counting everything in the room. You're not counting, you know, how many light bulbs there are in the ceiling. You're not counting how many square inches of shelving or how many, how many rats you see scurrying around the back room. No, you, you've got a list, and you're looking for the things on your list, and you're checking them off. You're counting them. You ever do these uh, hidden picture things, like in highlights for kids or whatever? Uh, I always love these things. There we go. Yeah, highlights fan there. Um, but, you know, you've got this, this reality, and then you've got a list of things you're supposed to find in that reality. And you're supposed to, you know, color them in or mark them or circle them or something. And, you know, at first you might look kind of hard, but once you've got it identified, it's easy to find. And your eyes can go right to it. And Paul is saying, that's the way we need to live our lives. You know, we need to, the things that are true and honorable and, and right and pure and lovely and excellent and of good repute and, and worthy of praise, for these things, he's like, 
we need to count these things, circle these things, color these things in. This is our, this is our hidden you know, picture, find it. This is our, our inventory we're taking of life, and we need to count the right things. We need to count the right things. This is an emphasis in Scripture, the issue of mindset, of where we set our focus. For example, Colossians 3, you've been raised with Christ, so set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. There are truths that must be grasped through Scripture with the eyes of the heart. We need to set our mind on the true reality of the situation, not just what I see at face value. We walk by faith and not just by sight. Or uh, 2 Corinthians 4.18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Same idea. 1 Peter 1.13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We're eagerly waiting for the Savior from heaven who's going to transform us. That's where we live our lives with one foot firmly planted on eternity. Hebrews 12.1, let's run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Yeah, we look to Him as we run this race that God has marked out for us. And He says... You know, Jesus, he's our example, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So Jesus showed us what to do. When he was on the cross, he wasn't looking at the temporary pain that he was going through. He was looking ahead to the joy that was set before him. And so he had his, he had his focus on the right place. That's the only way he made it through the cross. And so what this implies, the fact that Paul has to exhort us eight different ways here in this verse, it implies that most people are biased toward the negative. And uh, if you're self-aware, you've been around people long enough, you'll know this is true. Now, granted, some people are too positive. It's funny how some people, the people that are too positive can also be actually pretty negative. But some people, it's like they're trying to refuse to admit to any negatives. And they're trying to talk themselves into a different version of reality. They're afraid to to face problems. Um, They often have a secret negativity anyway you'll find if you get below the surface a little bit. Um, and there's, their positivity is somehow actually cynical. Um, the problem is they can't help others or themselves deal with reality. You know, when I go to a doctor, I don't want them to just tell me everything's fine. If everything's fine, that's what I want to hear. But if not, I want to know, you, you shoot straight with me here. What's the problem and what are we going to do about it? And if you can't acknowledge the problem, you can't do anything about it. The first step is admitting you have a problem, as the saying goes. And so we do need to, we're, we're looking for balance here. Like, it's not that we just, la, 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 can't think of negatives. No, we're aware of negatives, but what we're going to see is we need them properly weighted, properly balanced over against the truer and weightier positives. And then that is what gives us the perspective and the foundation to do something about the negatives. How is negativity expressed? It comes out in all kinds of different ways. For more introverted personalities, it can turn inward. Pessimism, fear, anxiety, self-pity, sadness, often a depression, because all their emotional energy is spent on negativity. It's, it's you know, the, the anxiety we talked about last week is directly related to this. It all comes up in the same context. More aggressive personalities might have more of a, an outrage, a hostility, a violence, but even these two will, will experience depression. You've only got so much emotional energy. And, you know, if I run a marathon, I'm, that's going to sap my, my physical energy. I'm not going to have time for other th- energy for other things till I recover. Same with our emotional energy. If you run a marathon of negativity in your mind each day, you're just not going to have emotional energy left for other stuff. As opposed to the positivity that Paul is calling for here, which actually is going to give us energy. 
Here's another form of negativity known as perfectionism. Yes, the perfectionist ignores everything but the flaws. It's like anything that's good, let me just clear those out of the way so they don't get in my way of seeing reality here. And um, they get upset when things aren't perfect. They get upset when things didn't go as I planned them to go, the way we said they were going to go, the way I think they should go. And I'll admit, I actually, I know a guy who has this problem. All right, it's me. I can't lie to you guys. (laughs) Um, Perfectionism. This is something, and, and you know, like, I mean, I spent several years as a software engineer, okay? And you know, you know how those people are, right? You know, their idea of a good time is spending all afternoon poring over thousands of lines of code looking for a missing parenthesis. And when they find it, they rejoice and they tell all their friends and they throw a party. <laughs> it's hard to, like, then turn that off and deal with people. You know, it's like, I'll just kind of have it in my mind. Things are going to go a certain way, and then they don't, and I'm kind of like, uh, but I thought, you know, it's like the GPS where it's got the route mapped out, and you make a left instead, and the GPS is like freaking out and recalculating, and then, and then it just tries to make you do a U-turn in the next parking lot to go, and then you pass that, and then it makes you do the next U-turn, and then finally it's like, all right, look, don't blame me. <laughs> have it your way. <laughs> Even like, you know, my, my poor wife and friends, like, you know, I get in the car, my wife would be driving and she'd get on the highway and I'd be like, oh, so we're, I guess we're taking the highway. <laughs> I mean, Indianola would be faster this time of day, but, and it's like both ways are eight minutes, okay? <laughs> Plus or minus one. <laughs> and truly, am I that busy that I'm like <laughs> trying to scrounge every spare minute? <laughs> Getting, getting presents for like birthday or Christmas, I was awful to get presents for because it's like I'd open up and I would think, is this what I really wanted? Is this the best deal? Did, did she read the Amazon reviews? It's horrible. Like, I wasn't saying these, but it was obvious. Like, and, then, and then they go on to become like my favorite things, okay? Like, this is the irony. It, it's not that it was actually bad. It's just like, it just wasn't what I was thinking. And it's It's negativity. It's, it's negativity. So perfectionism, it is good for some purposes. Like if you're building a bridge or, you know, coding the anti-lock brakes on your car, like you want a perfectionist on that, right? But for dealing with everyday things like fallen people in a fallen world, um, you know, and you're not perfect either. So why are you holding other people to a standard that, that you wouldn't meet anyway? Um, no, we, we're going to have to learn to deal with with human weaknesses and a less than perfect world. And if we're unhappy about that, then we're just going to be unhappy. And we're going to make other people unhappy as well. And I hope you guys can, can learn some of these lessons sooner than I did so that you spare some of the people in your life um, pain and uh, damage to those relationships. Yeah, perfectionism. And then there's also cynicism. Here's another form of negativity. I'll just give you a few quotes from Dick Keyes' book, Seeing Through Cynicism. Excellent book. Keyes writes, Cynicism, as we use it today, has to do with seeing through and unmasking positive appearances to reveal the more basic underlying motivations of greed, power, lust, selfishness. It says that every respectable public agenda has a hidden private agenda that is less noble, flattering, 
and moral. And, you know, this, the cynic's even worse than the perfectionist because, you know, the perfectionist, at least they see something wrong. The cynic can't even see anything wrong, but knows, they know it's there. They know better. They see through the facade to the hidden underlying thing that they just know has to be there. The philosopher Peter Sloterdijk writes that cynicism is the universally widespread way in which enlightened people see to it that they're not taken for suckers. The experienced voice of cynicism says, watch out, don't be taken in. Suspicion is shrewd and necessary to life. Yes, I'm not negative, I'm not cynical, I'm just discerning. I'm just wise, I'm shrewd. It promises a more sophisticated way of seeing. It promises to protect you from getting conned or disgraced or from letting your hopes be smashed in disappointment. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really terrible way to try to create hope. It's like God is the God who offers real hope. And uh, if we use cynicism to try to guard our hope, all we're going to be doing is we're going to be on the defensive. It's a negative hope. Cynicism's elusive. It's not a school of philosophy or a systemic thought, systematic thought. It's essentially just a negative judgment. It stakes out no positive turf that it would have to defend. It needs to only unmask somebody's phoniness to make its case. How do you criticize someone who makes no positive assertions to criticize? Or even more difficult, how do you do it when his or her negative judgments are funny? Yeah, much of the power of cynicism comes through wit and humor. To question the truth claims of cynical judgments often requires an awkward, unnatural shift of your whole state of mind or the momentum of any given conversation. There's a serious disincentive to criticizing cynicism. It's the fear of the return strike. The cynic, if provoked, is often very good at using humor to make an opponent look to naive, earnest, stupid, or uncool. Yeah, we're trying to have these positive interactions in, in Christian community here, and you've got people injecting this, these cynical sneak attacks, this sniping. If you've got a problem with somebody, just talk to them about it in a mature way. Don't just take funny shots at them when it's, uh, you know, in front of a group of people. It's like, how do you even respond to that? You even feel, you feel like bad going back to the person on it afterward to ask them what that really meant. So be like, oh, <laughs> Just laughing it off. And, I, and I'm all about like, being funny and having a good time, but it's like there are much more positive building ways to be funny and have fun with each other than by tearing one another down with negative cynical attacks. Yeah, it's much, much safer to leave the cynic undisturbed and unchallenged. Finally, he writes, the genius of cynicism is that it is a voice in your head that does not hang around to be interviewed, much less interrogated. Yeah, it's a hard one to really kind of cross-examine because it's here and it's gone before you know it. And um, it takes a higher level of awareness to see the cynicism and to see the thing that's driving it, the thing that's underlying it. So we've got various different ways, depending on personality types, we've got various forms like perfectionism, like cynicism. And you know, it's not that the negatives aren't real, because we're fallen people in a fallen world. The problem with cynicism, it's so powerful in overriding, so with, with criticism and negativity, it's so powerful in overriding the positives. I'll give you an example. You know, I, I've done a lot of teaching in classroom settings, in larger settings like this, and one of the things you get as a teacher is you get feedback. And sometimes it's just a little comment card, you know, in the seat that people can drop in a bucket on the way out. 
Sometimes it's an email that you get. Sometimes it's, you know, like, um, I remember teaching at OSU, they'd have like these, this whole battery of questions they would ask the students at the end of the quarter for professor evaluations. You know, I'd have a stack of, of you know, 20 of these that were all positive, and then I'd read one that was negative. A stack of 20 comment cards that are positive and one that's negative. And can you guess what I spent the rest of the day thinking about? Was it the 20 positives or was it the one negative? That's right, the one negative. There's something about criticism that just lodges deep and just makes you feel bad and it, you can't even see the positives. The power of negativity. So here's a question I thought might be good for us to um, just spend a moment discussing. Why do you think people tend to be biased toward negativity? What do you think it is about that? A protection method. I think, that, I think there's a lot to that. You don't want to get your hopes up because it hurts to have your hopes crushed. So if I just expect everything to be negative, then I can be pleasantly surprised when something positive happens. Yeah, Jake. Okay, yeah, so there, there is a certain positive problem-solving instinct where um, I see where things need to get better, and I can work on those areas. So I think that's a good thing. But like you said, the problem is when then all the positives get squashed and nothing's good enough, um, whether it's toward myself or toward other people. Yeah, back, back there. Ah, if it's already hopeless, what's the point of trying? And uh, it kind of lets me off the hook um, because it's, it's too hopeless to even, even try. Yeah, one more back here. Yeah, you know, um, the, the um, news companies have picked up on this. You know, that's why they say if it, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Like, they put the negative story first. And uh, I was watching a, um, I think it was a TED Talk of this, this woman who was a former news reporter. And she's like, every day we would go in, and um, they would show us the ratings from yesterday. And she's like, without fail, if yesterday we ran more negative stories, the ratings went up. If yesterday we ran more positive stories, the ratings went down. And so she's like, it's not just social media that we're controlling and steering toward the negative. Like, negative things are more likely to get retweeted, reposted. It's kind of that shock factor, that, that like, outrage factor. But it, it's not just the social media, it's media, because they're watching what people are watching, and then they're giving the people more what they want, because they, they just want eyeballs on the screen so they can sell advertising. And so negativity sells. There's something about us that's fascinated with negativity. And um, that's what Paul is speaking to here. Why is it so bad? Well, for one, it's a lie. It's, it's not an accurate representation of the truth. As much as the negative person thinks, they just tell it like it is. Um, and it's a lie if you're a Christian. I should be specific. You know, for the Christian, we've received so much from God in this life, even more in the life to come, didn't deserve any of it. Our future couldn't be brighter. If you're not a Christian, though, if you haven't received that forgiveness, that free gift, that salvation, eternal life from Christ, then you actually, you don't have much reason to be that positive. Like some of the things we're talking about tonight, you can benefit a little bit from that. But what you really need is you need that long-term guarantee that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what kind of a, a, a bad luck streak I, I end up on, I know that eternally I'm going to be with Christ. And I know my best years are always ahead of me if I have a relationship with Christ. And so it's with, with some people, like, like the naturalistic worldview, the atheistic worldview, you know, by your own worldview, you've got no reason to be positive because, you know, the fact that you even think you're feeling anything that you're conscious, that's just a, 
it's just a trick of your brain chemistry. You're headed toward worm food very soon, and, and you'll cease to exist. And so there's not a lot of reason for positivity, but if you're a Christian, then negativity just it doesn't capture the whole truth. It makes things seem worse than they really are as well. It makes things seem worse than they really are. You know, you think about, we were talking about this is a counting term, and you're just counting inaccurately. If you're, you're counting the wrong things, you know. You, when you go up to somebody and you're like, so how are you doing? Usually what the answer is, the answer is what I've been counting lately. What I've been checking off on my little sheet lately. You know, you could ask me, how are you doing today? And I could tell a version of my day that is so positive. You know, I woke up this morning, and isn't it amazing that I had another day of life, that I'm alive, that I was allowed to live one more day? And I woke up, and it, I woke up early because the sun was shining, and I've got these, these great windows in my bedroom, and I felt awake, and I felt sort of rested, and I knew I wasn't going back to sleep, so I was like, I got up, and I look, and you know, I, I've got this awesome bed that was is so comfortable. I've got air conditioning running in my bedroom, this amazing technology that keeps me from being way too hot at night. You know, I look, I see my awesome wife. I can't believe I get to be married at all, much less to someone like her. And then I go downstairs, and I eat breakfast, and I open this, this incredible rectangle called a refrigerator, and there's so much food in there. Someone has milked a cow. Sterilized it, put it in a jug, and then brought it within a mile of my house for me to purchase for almost nothing. I have this cereal. It tastes so good. It fills me up. It has fiber and protein. I have cold brew coffee that I didn't, my wife made it with beans that were harvested on another continent, transported to the United States, roasted to perfection, <laughs> packaged, and sold for almost nothing in a, a place called a grocery store a mile from my house. And I'm, I'm having this feast. I, I open the other rectangle, there's ice cubes. There is, someone has milked another cow and has mixed half cream with half milk, and I pour that into my coffee, and it's incredible. And then I sit down with my Bible, and my Bible is so cool, and it's the best scholars in the world translated this with, it's got hundreds of maps and diagrams, and I sit there, and the birds are chirping, and the sun is shining, and I can read, and my eyes work, and I don't need glasses, but if I did, I could go buy some. And then I, I'm wearing clothes. I have lots of different clothes to wear. And then I, you know, I drive to work. And, and you know, like I, I may have died almost on the way to work. There was a tractor driving 15 miles an hour, but I, I didn't. And it, it was great. <laughs> and, and I could go on. I could spend the rest of our time talking about that. But, you know, I could probably tell a very different story of that same day, that same morning where I wouldn't mention any of the good stuff. I would just complain about the problems. My phone's too old. I didn't sleep well enough, you know. There's all, I, it's actually kind of hard for me to think of the negative. But what are you counting? What are you counting? That's maybe your biggest problem, why you're not happy, why you've got problems in your spiritual life. You're counting the wrong things. 
What have you been counting lately? We may need to say that to each other. What have you been counting? Because the sour look on your face makes me think not what Paul is saying. Whatever is true and honorable and right and lovely and of good repute and all that stuff. Yeah. It gives an improper weighting to things. You know, he talked about that a little bit in that 2 Corinthians 4.18 verse. He said, fix our eyes on what is seen, not on what is, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. But he goes on and he says, the reason is because what's seen is temporary and what's unseen is eternal. Imagine the most horrible thing possible happening to you. At the same time, the most wonderful things possible is happening to you. And the horrible thing, you know, is only going to last for one minute. And the wonderful thing, you know, is going to last for 10 years. You know, in that one brief minute, you know it's only going to last a minute. You know this other thing is so much longer. You might be like, I mean, I got this thing, but it's so short. I got the other thing. That's, that's going to be great. And that is great. That's what it's like for the Christian, except the time frames are much further apart. Like, the, the light and momentary affliction, that the temporary thing, that, that's like less than a second compared to eternity. And the awesome thing, that's eternal. A, a time frame we, we can't even imagine. And so we need to put our negatives into perspective for the extremely temporary things that they are. And that's going to help make them easier to take. And it's, it's going to help turn our focus to the happy-making things that we need to be focused on. It's also self-fulfilling, negativity. You know, Bruce Wilkinson in his book, Seven Laws of the Learner, tells a story about his first day as a professor. And uh, he was a teacher at a Bible college. And his first day, they assigned him... Um, Bible study methods, section one, two, and three. And so he's kind of looking over his schedule. He's like, you know, excited. He's getting ready to teach. And one of the older, uh, you know, seasoned faculty members comes up to him and he goes, man, I can't believe it. And he goes, can't believe what? And he goes, they gave you section two, the new guy. And he goes, well, what's section two? Section two? Okay, section two is where we put all the honor students. We started doing this several years ago because we just felt like the advanced students, they were being held back by the non-advanced students. So we put them all in one class. He's like, yeah, I got to, he's like, I got to teach it before. Just, just wait. You're going to be blown away. So Wilkinson goes into his first class, section one, and it's like, these are good, bright students. It was great. It was a good class. It was a good time of learning. Bell rings, they leave. Next group comes in, and he's like, as soon as the bell ring, he's like, I could tell. This was a different caliber of student. He was like, it was like I was on a roller coaster and I could barely keep up with these guys. Their questions were coming so fast. I just felt like I was doing all I could to hang on and to keep up with these guys. So hungry, so willing, so excited. Then section three rolls in. And he's like, and they were great, but he's like, but they, they weren't section two, okay? They weren't section two whole first half of the semester goes along, and every single day it's the same thing. The section two is the highlight of his day. It's the highlight of his job. He's putting in extra time at night just to be ready for section two because he doesn't want to let the university down. Gets to be midterms, and he's talking with the dean of the college, and he's like, how you liking it here, Bruce? He's like, oh man, I love it. And he's like, what's your favorite part so far? And he's like, he's like I just blurted out, section two. Thank you so much. And the dean's like, really, section two, tell me more. And so he just starts going on and on about these students and how it's just like, he, the new guy, he's not tenured, and they just gave him this great privilege. And the dean's getting this smile on his face, and uh, finally he goes, 
You know, Bruce, I'm glad you're liking section two, but um, we killed that program this summer. We just decided we're going to mix the honor students back in with everybody, so you've got an equal amount of, um, you know, ACT scores and, and high school transcript GPAs in all of your three classes. And he goes, I didn't believe him. I thought he was messing with me. I, he said, I went back to my office. I called the, uh, the, the university uh, secretary immediately, and he goes, uh, hey, you know, he asked her, he said, so section two, that's where we put all the honor students, right? And she goes, oh, no, we killed that program this summer. He looks over, he sees the midterm exam papers. The stack of section one and three put together was still not as high as the section two stack, and the section two was way better. And he says, I basically, I finally had to admit, I, I, never, I never went into class and said, you guys are section two, I'm expecting more out of you. The difference between two and one and three was entirely in my expectations. I, I expected more from them and was interacting in such a way that it brought out the best in them. It's negativity, and it's opposite, can be self-fulfilling. He goes on, and he, he cites research about they've observed teachers who have low expectations of certain students. And he says those teachers tend to wait less time for the student to answer, call on that student less frequently, give briefer and less informative feedback so they're less helpful to the student. They interrupt them more quickly when they make mistakes. They're less patient with the student. They criticize more and praise left off, less often. They're more critical. They fail to give the benefit of the doubt in borderline cases. They're less generous. And in short, they pay less attention. They smile and maintain eye contact less often. And they limit encouraging physical touch. They're just icing the person out and they don't even realize it because of their negative view of the person. And unfortunately, that can creep its way into our relationships. And that's why we have to lean toward the positive if we're going to be involved with people, lest we be communicating things we don't want to communicate and shaping the reality around us in a direction we do not want it to go. Finally, negativity is just plain unbelief. For the Christian, it's unbelief in the power of God, the promises of God, the goodness of God, you know, the reality that God actually gets, he's the living God who gets involved in, in situations. It's uh, unbelief in the things God has done in the past that he's going to continue doing them. It's you're basically like becoming a deist, like a negative deist that believes God does not touch the real world. And so it's just plain unbelief. And it needs to be challenged with the truth of Scripture. And that is what Paul is getting at here. How do we correct our negative bias? I'll give you a couple ideas, and maybe we'll have more in the Q&A or our, our discussions afterward. One is to admit you're biased. You've got to be aware. If you think you're too negative and you're actually too positive of a person, that's going to be bad, and the, the opposite would be bad as well. No, we, we're trying to move toward reality. We're trying to move toward balance. We want to, get, we want to see things clearly. You need to start counting the positives, like Paul says here. Dwell on these things. Count these things. You know, you're like, but there are no positives. Okay, well, there's your problem. You know, your job. It's easy to complain and have a negative attitude toward your job, but there's really nothing positive about this job. Like, what about the fact that you have a job? Um, what about, you know, I'm sure we could arrange a conversation with someone in a third world country that would love to hear about your job and how terrible it is. And then they would be willing to swap you jobs. 
Would you, like, would you rather pick, uh, pick rice for 13 hours a day and make a dollar? Because they would, they would gladly trade. Yeah, your job? There's got to be some positives you could count there. There's got to be some positives about your roommates. We need to notice the positives. We need to start expressing those positives as well. We've got to take into account how God's come through in the past as well. That's part of the, the positives that we're counting is there's a hope in God, hope that God can change things for the better. Even when we do see negatives... We're praying God get involved with those. We also need to recognize micro-movement. When you're in there working with people, change from day to day happens very slowly. It's like, you know, erosion or, or like a tree growing. You can't see the tree growth from day to day, but what you can see is from year to year. And so we've got to learn to recognize micro-movement. We don't want to be too positive and say there's movement when there has been none or when there's been regression. But micro-movement is something we need to learn to recognize. You also need to get into Scripture. Get into Scripture. Scripture is my anchor. It is my compass. It is my, it is my guiding light. It is, it is how I get my bearings about me each day, where I look at what God says about reality, about Himself, about whatever He wants to tell me that day, and God speaks to me. And He shows me what He's doing. I look at the plan God is working out, was, was working out throughout history, and it reminds me that I'm still part of that plan. It gives me guidance for my life. And so getting into Scripture is a way to battle negativity. You need to stop expressing your negativity. That's a problem. You know, we're, we're having a hard enough time fighting our own negative bias. And now you're going to come in and dump yours all over me? How about we all are in this together trying to create a more positive environment you know, I know it says out of the heart the mouth speaks, but try to kind of clamp the mouth while you're working on the heart. And like you said back in Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling. Remember that? Let's, uh, let's see if we can do some of that while we work on the heart and try to create a more positive environment where negative stuff stands out in, in a bad way and where we all are trying to work to correct that. Finally, taking action. You know, that's what he says in verse 9. And he says, he goes on to say after verse 8, the things you've learned, um, learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So verse 7, you had the peace of God surpassing all understanding. In verse 9, he says, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so it's, you will experience the presence of God, the peace of God, um, as you act on these things. And so, you know, one way to act is by speaking the positive things that we're thinking. You know, it's actually kind of sad how many positive things I think about people that never make it past the thought stage. If I could just speak the things that I'm thinking about people, sometimes I'll just text people encouragement when I'm thinking about it because I don't want to forget about it. And I'm like, why waste a good thought and leave it in my mind? Why not also share that with somebody? And then you're spreading a positive perspective around Positive words, you know, talking about the positive things you're seeing that you're noticing. What about thanksgiving, expressing thanksgiving as you're talking with people, things you're grateful for. Try to steer the conversation in a thankful, positive direction. Sometimes you need to do something, like Paul says here in verse 9. Do something. He's calling us from not just the dwelling on these things to practice these things. And so sometimes God shows you, He points out something negative because He wants you to do something about it. You know, God shows us discern God gives us discernment so we can pray and so that we can maybe do something about it if that's what He wants us to do. 
But ask God, you know, is there anything you want me to do about this thing that I'm noticing? And you might actually be a force for positive um, and not just seeing the positives, but also correcting some of the negatives so that there's even more positive going around. So in conclusion, the world has a lot of bad. There's a lot of bad things in this world. It's a fallen world. Nobody's denying that. But you know what? The bad parts of this world, they're temporary. They're temporary. This is light and momentary affliction. Everything will be remade. Christ will wipe every tear from every eye. The bad stuff is not going to be there anymore because he says, behold, I make all things new. The truth is that God is good. And he's working out his good plan. He's given you good works to do. And he's also trying to shape your perspective so that you look not, not only at what is seen, but what is unseen. Not just at the, the light and momentary affliction, but the eternal weight of glory. Where you've, you set your hearts on the things above. You set your minds on the things above. That's what he wants from you. He is good, and he's teaching how to shape your perspective so you're able to see the good. So the question is, where will you focus? What will you count? Will you count the positive or the negative? And I'll leave you with a quote from Henry Nouwen, which I think sums up what we've been talking about here. He says, people who have come to know the joy of God, the happiness of God that we've been talking about, they don't deny the darkness, but they choose not to live in it. They don't deny the darkness, but they choose not to live in it. They claim that the light that shines in the darkness can be trusted more than the darkness itself, and that a little bit of light can dispel a lot of darkness. That's the hope that we have. Yes, Lord, thank that you, thanks that you've moved into a world that had nothing good going for it because of what we did to it, and you brought your promise, your hope of salvation. You've brought all the good things you still give to people that hate you, God, and um, the even better things you give to your own kids who have come into your family through Christ. We, um, we pray, God, that we would be the right kind of counters, that we would pay closer attention to the positive things, um, that you've given us, God, and not just take those for granted and absorb blessing without realizing it. Um, but I pray that we would walk around highly aware of all the good that you give us and uh, hopeful about life and the future and just simply happy because we serve such a good God. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.